BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Last time on House of Prayer. Our investigation has revealed we have multiple victims. Uh, there are three juveniles that were tortured. Uh, two were murdered, died at the scene. Uh, one was buried here in Alachua County. The other, we're still looking for their remains. She comes out one day and she says that Mar it's Marcos or it's me. One of us has to leave. Her instructions were to just leave him on the streets. Just find somewhere in the dark, wait till night in the dark and leave him on the streets. My mom was sister, whoever her name was, but she wasn't my mother. There was no hugging, no kissing, no. I knew she was still my mom, but I called Anna mom. And Anna was the person that I considered my mom and who, you know, who I wanted to please and all that other stuff. Please take care when listening. Some of this is difficult to hear. This video is pretty blurry, but you can make out what's going on. All right, uh, moving right along. So I, I told you I would try, try not to take up too much of your time. No, take your time. You can see the back of a man sitting at a desk. There's a camera set up above him. Sitting across from him is an older woman. It's Anna Young. This is your marriage certificate. Mm -hmm. And now you are married to, uh, to Robert Anderson. Yes, sir. Okay. It, this is your bank information? Yes, sir. Okay, good. The door to this small room is closed. Anna was told she's here to answer questions about Social Security benefits with a man who introduces himself as Special Agent Mervyn Miller. He tells Anna that he investigates Social Security fraud. Mm -hmm. I always tell people this when I talk to them about issues of identity theft or mm -hmm. inquiries that we do. Because we do, um, just so you know, we do the investigations for Social Security. It's March 2017. This meeting is happening three months after Anna's daughter Joy called the police, triggering an investigation. Police are interviewing Anna about Social Security money she received from Moses, the little boy she's accused of killing. Once you be comfortable being able to talk, and sometimes people, if they don't feel comfortable, they can leave. They're not, they're not tied to this room, okay? Yes, okay. Today, they're only questioning her. She can leave at any time. How many children do you have? I have five children now. Mm -hmm. Five children, yeah. yeah. And what are their names? I have six. Oh, oh well, Terrence. Terrence. Sublime. Kevin. Arthel. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Joy and Moses. It takes nearly a half hour before Agent Miller gets to the real reason why Anna was called. You came in and you applied uh, for benefits uh, with um, children's benefits for mm -hmm. two of your children. You applied for children's benefits for two of your children. 
Moses and Joy. I was just asking because that, that kind of flagged my system, too. Moses had been missing for about 30 years. Remember, he was the little boy who came to the house of prayer without his parents and was introduced to everyone as Anna's son. The police will use this interview as part of the investigation into Moses' death and Anna's alleged role in it. In fact, cold case detective Kevin Allen is listening to this interview from another room. But Anna doesn't know that yet. Okay. I'm going to show you a letter here. I just want to... Tell me if you got this one. Yeah, I got. A, I think I got a letter like this for Joy and him. Yes, you would. Mm-hmm. But I do remember okay. that I got something showing no more money yeah, would be a lot okay. for both of them. Because when they turn 18, it stops. Here in this video, Anna is telling officials she had been getting government assistance for Moses until what would have been his 18th birthday. In your opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be the best way to find him? I don't him? know. Investigators are asking Anna if she knows how to contact Moses. We found the others very easily with their yeah. numbers and their work history and everything, but we couldn't find any work history for him or any other names that he went by. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was making it difficult trying to find him. Well, I don't know if they changed his name Anna goes on to tell Agent Miller that she hasn't seen little Moses in decades. She says she gave him up not long after her husband Jonah died in an accident in 1988. Anna tells them that her husband's death left her so distraught that she was unable to care for Moses. Anna says she gave Moses to a woman who was a member of the House of Prayer, someone who didn't live on the property. I gave him up for to lady back then. At this point, Anna is getting really emotional. I want to give her myself to I don't want to live either. my son. Anna tells the police that giving the little boy away seemed like the best thing to do at the time. For the first few years or so, she says she would hand over his benefit money to the woman she gave Moses to. But after a while, they lost touch. And Anna admits she kept the money for herself. Uh, I, I, the only thing I can see is what I probably, ain't probably what I did wrong, but I do know that I was getting money and uh, the child wasn't in my care. I do know that, and ain't, I'm not going to lie about it. I mean, I'm 75, so I ain't, I ain't ready to be going, uh, you know, whatever I have to deal with, that's what I have to deal with. I'm at, at a time in my age that uh, I feel like whatever I have to go through, I I have to go through, you know. And so that's that's what I've accepted. This is House of Prayer. I'm your host, Leela Day. And I'm Beth Karras. I reported this story. Chapter 4, John. This was like their chance of having another child together. So we're all happy about it. And um, I remember him coming down there and it seemed like everything was at peace. Joy became Moses' big sister when she was eight years old. 
When he was brought to the house of prayer, she remembers loving the idea of having a little brother. I don't remember anything happening to him until after Dad died. Moses was a baby when he arrived at the house of prayer. He slept in Anna's room. Former members say he was a happy child, but after Anna's husband died, they remember how much things changed for him, including being moved into a small, cramped loft, really a storage space, in Anna's room. He was little. I remember her hitting the bottom of his feet to make him climb faster up the ladder to go to that bed that they had built that used to be for me but turned into like a punishment bed. It was only comfortable in the winter when it was cooler. You know, he had to be up there and locked in and stuff. And I remember looking up and seeing him peeking through the thing. And if he peeked, he would get, you know, the stick would, you know, hit hit against the thing and the back up and everything and being caged in there for whatever. I remember telling on him too um, because he was potty training. And I remember he pooped or peed or something in my trash can. And he got in trouble, a lot of trouble for that. For years, Joy battled these kinds of memories. She pushed aside the guilt. She tried to ignore the flashbacks she would have about how this little boy was treated. I remember climbing up in the loft and um, going up there to get him. John Neal was a child at the House of Prayer. He has vivid memories of what life was like for Moses, especially after Jonah died. The hot loft up there, yeah. I remember, um, that's where he slept up in that loft. In the summer, it was very hot. And it was a little cubby hole. So it was probably like a little storage something up there. I don't think an adult could really fit in there, but a kid could. John says he started looking after little Moses. He helped put him to bed, he changed his diapers, and he kept an eye on him during the day. He also saw how things changed for the little boy. It was as if he went from being Anna's son to being an outcast. We were out in the garden, and um, I don't know if we were planting or picking vegetables, but he was standing next to me, and Anna was doing one of her property walks. Queen Anna doing her walk and surveying her, her kingdom. And she came out there happy. And... He was next to me, and Anna called him, and he grabbed, clamped on my leg. And then she got mad and called him, and he started crying, and he wouldn't let go of my leg. And then Anna came and yanked him off my leg. That was the last time John saw Moses. Time alone at the House of Prayer was rare. The members ate together, worked together, and slept in communal bedrooms. Men and boys in one, girls and women in the others. Within a year of Moses' disappearance, things for John changed. When he was about 11, John was offered a space of his own. Along the outside edge of the property, small one-room cabins had been built, basic wooden frames. They were rough and far from cozy. You could just hear the cars going up and down the highway. Like I said, it literally was maybe less than 100 yards from I-75, which is two-lane, four-lane highway, you know, two lanes going each way. 
One day, out of the blue, Anna told John that he'd now be sleeping in a cabin out there. Like, I literally had the cabin all to myself, and I don't remember why they gave me the cabin. The cabins might not have been cozy, but for John, the chance to sleep alone was an unexpected gift. I was a chronic bedwetter. Chronic, when I say chronic, man, I mean chronic. And it was a fear thing. I was peeing, I would pee in the bed all the time, man. And then my heart would drop because I'm like, oh, I'm about to get a beating. But once I moved out the brother's room down to the cabin, I was by myself. So when I peed in the bed down there, I wasn't worried about getting caught. By this time, John and his mother had been living at the House of Prayer for seven years. John had fully accepted that Anna was his mother, and Leah Vera had no authority over him. In fact, John hardly even saw his mother. Anna was considered the mother of the church. Everything she said go, everything she said went. This is John's mother, Leah Vera. And um, I have two children, two living children. Leah Vera came to the House of Prayer at one of the most vulnerable points in her life. I had a third child who was Leah Catania Jackson, and she passed away. Catania had come to the House of Prayer with her mother and her brother John. She's the two-year-old who developed a seizure disorder and died. After her death, John and his mother continued to live at the House of Prayer for another six years. When Anna was speaking, I was scared to, I was scared to say anything. So uh, things, because she was saying that, that, that God told her this and God told her that. So you just shut up and listen. And you don't say nothing. Because she was saying that this was God speaking to her. And that she was like God was speaking through her to us. And you believed it? I believed it, but with question. Because what she was saying didn't line up with what, how we were living and the way she was treating, treating, you know, the older people there. You know, something wasn't right. It was just, you just, you just, it's like little red flags go up in your head. So my whole time there, it was like you walk on eggshells. And I was just praying. I said, God, I know you real. And I know that, you know, what your word says, but this is just something that's not right here. It might not have felt quite right, but Leah Vera went along. She did her chores. She prayed when she was supposed to pray. She told us that she would give Anna her paycheck that she earned on the outside. She tried to follow the rules. Remembering this time in their lives is difficult for John. On one hand, he understands the control Anna had over everyone. But on the other hand, it's hard for John to forgive his mother for getting them into this position in the first place. She, she abandoned me 100%. This anger that John has for his mother, it's still very close to the surface. I got hit hundreds of times. Hundreds. One of the times he remembers vividly, and it's something he's told police about. Anna has not been charged for this incident. So, 33 was the minimum. And that was normal. But this one time... Uh, it was this one time, one of many, that John got into some of the worst trouble. He was around seven years old. And, then, and the punishment was 33. Licks, uh, stripes, whatever you want, lashes, whatever you want to call it. So I would get to like 30 or 29 and I would flip over. I would move because you just had to lay still. You couldn't move. John says that every time he moved, the counting started again. And so, 
kept flipping over when I would, it would be hurting too much. I was lying on the couch. I remember it was a couch with a yellow cover on it because by the time it was done, like the whole couch was just covered in blood, <laughs> in my blood. But um, it just got, it just went like out of control because I, I couldn't, after, like after, like I said before, if you can't get the first couple 33s in, you're not gonna be able to do it. So after it didn't happen, it just, they start beating me. She got the other man involved. I remember all of them taking turns beating me. Um, let's see. Break time. Did like that about this, but I don't know, maybe it is what it is. This day at the House of Prayer, this day that John told police he was beaten so badly, it's a day that many recount when asked about memories there. It's one that can't be forgotten. And for John, there was one image he can't shake. They brought my mom in. I'm naked, bloody, and my mom was standing there like this with her uh, hand in front of her face. It looked like she was in shock. And I'm looking like, help me, mom. And then they escorted her out. And then I told I was I was like, that's when I knew I was by myself out there. There was no help for me. And today he remembered the look on my face. And today he lets me know he felt like he was all alone. He said, because you didn't do nothing. What could I have done? I don't know. I just I don't know. I was too afraid to do anything. But when I saw John. To this day, I look at him. I, I, I don't even remember his face. All I remember seeing something or figure stoop down, but I don't remember nothing. I don't even, I can't even remember. I couldn't tell you his face. I think my whole being just went into shock so that I could just, I don't remember. And I think that was God's way of protecting my sanity. Lori Vallow was the kind of woman who seemed to have it all. But that sweet girl next door was changing. She's lost her mind. So how does she pose a threat to your children? I don't know what she's going to do with them. I'm Sarah Trelevin, and this is Madness of Two. Over the last year, I've been investigating the case of Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell. How together, police say they plotted the deaths of Lori's two children, JJ and Tylee, something they've denied. Join me in Madness of Two, available wherever you get your podcasts. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
The scars from that alleged beating were first noticed by authorities about a year later. John was eight years old when he went to the hospital for something else, a scalp infection. So the whole time I was out there, I had a severe dry skin problem on my scalp, and I would have flakes. But I would get in trouble for that, too. So went to the hospital. The lady took a look at my head, and she was like, okay, so she said, take off your shirt. Then she saw the scars, and then it was like, it just went downhill from there. Leah Vera says she was directed by Anna to meet John at the hospital. She says Anna gave her very specific instructions on what to say if asked about the scars. Anna told me to tell them that when John was smaller, he was riding his bicycle, tricycle, and that he ran through a um, glass, a glass plate door, and that's how he got the scars on his back. So she told me to tell them that. And I told him exactly what she told me to tell him. We can't confirm that Anna told Leah Vera to say this. But years later, when John was being interviewed by Detective Kevin Allen about his years at the House of Prayer, he confirmed his mother's story. Let's be clear about this. So, uh, Mother Anna directed you to deceive any investigative branch of government by telling them the scars on your body that were inflicted on you by Anna and at her direction had not come from her, that they had come from glass. Yes. She said the only thing you can tell them is you have to, so if you ask me, hey, John, what happened to you? You have to ask my mom about the glass. When did you get it? You have to ask my mom about the glass. That was the only thing I, she, I, I was allowed to say. You were coached. Coached, yes. We do know that the hospital personnel were suspicious and called the authorities. The police separated us. We had a mother's we had a mother-son moment in that hospital because the police came in, they's like, we're gonna take him. And I held on to her and she held on to me and we cried and the police physically separated us, like ripped us apart. The scars were too severe. They triggered an investigation. I remember John Neal because he was the one case that I could never close. Dolores Kane was one of the caseworkers assigned to look deeper into John's situation. She's now a pastor in her own church north of Tampa, and she sings in the choir. I remember him mostly because when he rode the car with me, it didn't matter what question I asked him, his answer was the same. Ask my mother. And I remember looking at him and saying, hey, you mean you don't know your name? Ask my mother, ma'am, please. He was just a strange child because that did not make sense to me. I said, something's wrong here. This kid is too controlled. And he doesn't ask any questions. He's been told what he can say and what he won't say. And he's stuck to it. There are things that social workers look for when they suspect a child has been abused. He just looked like he was in pain and, and not physical pain, emotional pain. The judge ruled that even though John's scars were very severe, they were old. There was no imminent threat to his safety. So John was returned to Leah Vera and was back at the House of Prayer. But Dolores kept digging, and she discovered that John's sister Catania had died two years earlier. And that's when things started to shift. Dolores went back to the judge with this new information and he reversed his order. 
we went out that afternoon with the sheriff and, and a helicopter, SWAT team, the whole work. Dolores was determined to get John off of that property. And they had the gate locked, padlocked. And so the sheriff said to her, open the gate. And her, her, her dog came running. She, she let the dog loose. She said, I'm going to shoot your dog if you don't open this gate. About four adult members came forward and unlocked the gate. Then they dropped to their knees. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, we're praying for you. I said, I don't know who you're praying to because I know God and I know Christ and this ain't him. Dolores walked past the members kneeling at the front gate. And with a sheriff and the SWAT team, they searched the property for John. I was in there hiding when they came. The House of Prayer was full of hiding places. Under the stairs, in the attic, behind false walls in the closets. And I was hiding up under the stairwell. And I could see through the crack. I remember the sheriff being in the room. They searched and even returned another day to look again. They couldn't find him. So Leavera was eventually hauled into court. And the judge asked me, where was John? I couldn't tell that, that judge where John was. One thing, I wasn't sure. But I know one thing, if they took John and hid him, if I said anything, I probably would never have seen John again. And I was afraid to tell him. So I was held in contempt of court and they sent me to jail because I wouldn't tell where John was. How, how I, long were you in jail? And I'm not sure how long they kept me in jail, but it had to be about three, four, five months until finally one day they let me go. It might have been six months. It's interesting that you were like in court. You were before a judge. You had an opportunity to say, to tell them what was going on at House of Prayer. No, about I About Catania's death. I couldn't tell them that. No, not, not as long as Anna had my son. No, not as long as Anna had my son. It was like... You want to get away, you want to, but you're scared. You're scared to tell anybody because you're scared that, you know, unless John was there with me, I wouldn't have never seen him again. So I did exactly what she said. I kept my mouth shut and answered, you know, told, you know, said, she said, don't you say anything. And I didn't say anything. And when Leah Vera was released from jail, she went back to what she knew. Back to life at the House of Prayer. Authorities did continue to try and check up on John, but members had a signal for whenever officials were at the gate. John described this to Detective Allen decades later. How frequently were you ordered, directed to hide in some of those places? Quite a bit. And I think, uh, looking back looking back at it now, I think it was part of training me. Because uh, when it was time to hide, they would say, Bilal. What's the word? Bilal. Bilal. Devil. So devil, devil. So instead of saying the cops are here, they would say, Bilal, Bilal. And I would run to the closest place, hiding place, and hide. And I would stay there until somebody came and got me out. This went on for years, until one day, Leah Vera saw a window of opportunity and the chance to run. Very seldom do you go to work by yourself. You always take into work. You always went and got, you always got, you know, picked up. But one night, that didn't happen. Now, I was at work and I got a call from Deborah. Deborah was a former member and a friend, someone who had left the House of Prayer the month before. 
she called me. She said, you need to get out of there. She said, you need to leave. She said, there are a lot of things there that are not right and you need to leave. And it was just a split decision. I knew my sister's telephone number, Lana. And I just called, said, Lana, I'm going to leave. I said, don't tell nobody. Don't, don't you mention to nobody. Don't you say nothing. I said, but I'm not leaving without John. I'm not going to leave without my son. And so I'm going to tell you. So there are two ways into this place. I'm going to show you both ways. There's a front way and there's a back way. And I say, what I want you to do is I want you to come in. I got to go in first and park the car and leave it. And I'm going to go and get John. Looking back, Anna probably was like, I shouldn't have gave him the cabin. <laughs> because it, my mom would have never came to the brother's room and tried to get me out with all the men in there. She just, ain't no way that would happen. But I, they got comfortable. <laughs> they let me get a cabin by myself and allowed my mom to have access to me one-on-one. On this night, with John in his own cabin, Leah Vera was able to sneak in and be alone with her son. Then I had to walk down through the fields the way John's little cabin was. He slept in and go get him. And I had to talk to him. I said, John, look, we're going to go. Remember how Mary Joy go and see her grandparents? Look, you're going to go see your grandparents. I'm going to take you to go see your grandma. Come on, wouldn't you like that? She wakes me up out of sleep. I was asleep. And she says, come on, let's go see your grandma. You know, she was like agitated. Come on, let's go see your grandmother. Come on, Brother James. And I, my mother tried to get me to leave one other time, and I went and told on her. I went and told Anna. Why the guy grabbed him? I said, come on, let me, let me show you. He followed me, he followed me. And she like dragged me all the way up the field. Uh, it was pitch black outside. And uh, I think all I did was put on my boots. I had these, I had just got a brand new pair of big black heavy duty boots with no strings in them. And I put on those boots. And um, she dragged me up the field, and my Aunt Lana was waiting. He followed me outside the gate, and when we got out the gate, I notified the Lana to come. She came up, she drove up, I put him in the back seat. We opened up the gate, got in the car. I got, I said, Lana, keep going, don't stop for nothing. And my mom told, she told, she told my aunt, don't stop for nobody. If they do, run them over. And my Auntie Lana was the kind of person that would have ran them over. They didn't stop. They drove straight to Gainesville. And my house of prayer was over. And the first place we went was to John's grandmother because she hadn't seen him, I guess, in over three, four years or so. Went to my grandmother's house so she could see I was alive. She hadn't seen me in seven years. I showed up at her house at night, and she, I remember her just crying. He was grinning. That was his grandma. <laughs> Loves his grandma. <laughs> Joan Hope is John's grandmother, his father's mother. He was so wrapped up in Anna. It was terrible to even think that his mind was so messed up. That was the only mother figure that, that he had. I just feel sorry for John. I feel sorry for Kay. I don't even feel sorry for Vera. Because Vera should have left John and Kay out of it. If she wanted to ruin the rest of her life, she should have gone on with it. But she shouldn't have gotten John and Kay involved. 
But Grandma Joan only had a short time with her grandson. Leah Vera was terrified that someone from the House of Prayer would find them. I think they left because they were afraid. And they had to leave right away because uh, there was no telling what would have come off with that. I said, we just, we just, we just escaped out of here. I said, now, they're going to be looking for us. They really don't want me. They really want John. But, you, but we're going to go to Atlanta to stay with my sister. I said, but we got to go. We only got a few minutes, and we got to go. And I was later told they came by the house looking for us, but we were gone. We were long gone. And then once I got there, I had to work with John. I said, John, we got to change our clothes. I said, remember, we got to change back into worldly clothes, you know, because we had on these long outfits. And so, and I mean, I had to really talk to him and, and, and explain to him, John, this is not, this is not of God. And so we went to Atlanta and we still had to readjust ourselves. But it was just such a blessing that you could actually go in a house and open a refrigerator and get a glass of water. Your mom said she had to deprogram you. Yeah. Despite finally leaving the house of prayer and Anna's control, it would not be easy for John to adjust to his new life. John talked about this with Detective Kevin Allen. It took a while. I didn't want to take the clothes off. I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to completely let go of out there. But from what I remember, as, as time went on, I saw that life didn't have to be like that. Life could be good. And life is good for John. In Atlanta's suburbs where John lives today, his life is about being a proud dad, a military veteran, and someone who loves God to his core. Still, when looking back, John says the house of prayer will always have a grip on him. It formed me. <laughs> like my formative years, my childhood years were spent out there. That's, that's who I am. Is, is part of me forever. So I can't just forget about it and go on with my life. I have to deal with it every day. I can't forget about it. Three years after John and his mother escaped, John reported the abuse he received to the police. In particular, that horrible beating that lasted a few days and left all those scars. But too much time had passed the statute of limitations had expired, so charges were never filed. I didn't know what was going on that night with my mom. I was woke up out of sleep, but I just remember regretting not taking my Bible with me. Coming up on House of Prayer. She was punished uh, brutally. Well, from my understanding, Anna called and told my mom that she needed to come down because um, something had happened. And um, I remember mom being afraid and having talks with Elder Adam and Brother Thomas about going on a run. And I remember being terrified of it. Like, oh my God, we're going to leave. 
This podcast was produced by Kathleen Goldhar, Beth Karras, Max Miller, and me, Leela Day. Our associate producer is Alexis Green. Sound design and mixing by Mitchell Stewart. Additional reporting by Laura Isabel Gonzalez and Damon Fairless. Executive producing by Kathleen Goldhar, Beth Karras, and myself. Our UCP audio team includes Jessica Grimshaw, Jennifer Sears, Josh Laulangi, Susanna Rooney, and Linda Cohen. This is a UCP audio podcast. For more information, go to our website, ucpaudio.com. Audio.com.